Hi, it's David Poland. This is the Hot Button Number 71 Assumptions, Episode 2, Linear Television, Decision-Free, Strikes Back. This is my effort to break down some of the oft-repeated assumptions that people are now making about the future of content delivery and to offer a few facts that might just take their place. This is the second of three columns on this subject this week. I grew up changing the channels of our giant 20-inch screen by hand. Sound 2. The closer we, closest we ever got to Alexa was in 1981 when Alexis Carrington Colby came into our lives. The great irony is that in spite of the small screen, the bad sound, the lack of content options, watching TV in the pre-cable era, it's also the pre-VHS era, and the pre-DVD era, obviously, was more like watching a movie in a movie theater because that little box commanded our attention with an exclusivity that is now a challenge in any household, no matter how big your TV or how good your sound. When you turned it on, it was on. You could get up and change the channel, but mostly you didn't, maybe at the hour. But if you had a hit show at 10 o'clock, you were setting up the local stations of your network for huge numbers for 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock central news. And at 11.30, it was Johnny or Bust until the Ayatollah Khomeini greenlit nightline on ABC in 1979. Things have changed a lot, a lot, but not quite as much as people seem to believe. Assumption number one, no one watches traditional television anymore. It's simply false. Current analysis is that cable broadcast still enjoys more than double the total screen time than streamers in America. We can still point to singular events in both streaming and legacy. For instance, the number one domestic cable broadcast show was Yellowstone this last year, with domestic viewership of about 104 million hours, or 6.2 billion minutes. Netflix's Squid Game, their number one show last year, beat that handily, in America alone, with domestic viewership of about 285 million hours, or 15.5 billion minutes. The Paramount Network, which is where Yellowstone launches, has about 80 million accessible households in the U.S., and Netflix only has the 74 million. So it's a fair fight in that way. But even Paramount Network fans will acknowledge Netflix has a much higher level of engagement amongst their subscribers. You have to go looking for that Paramount Network. Still, people are watching boring old television and have not abandoned it. Unfortunately, there's no apples-to-apples comparison really possible internationally. I think there will be in about five years, but it's going to take a lot of international growth from Netflix's competition. Assumption number two, the advertising-based model of delivering content is on its way out. No more ads. Well, right now, the hottest area of growth in streaming is advertising-based models. HBO Max launched theirs. Peacock and Paramount Pluses are both growing faster than their paid no-commercial models. Broadcast television is still getting 160 grand to 600 grand per minute in prime time, and that's besides football, which gets even more. Overall, television advertising revenues added up to about $81 billion in 2021. AVOD, ad-based streaming, seems to have generated somewhere between 5 billion and 6 billion last year, and that number is expected to grow a lot. Third assumption, the average household is willing to spend more each month for content. Historically, this is false. If you look at the history of home entertainment, the rise of DVD and rising cable prices did happen together in the early 2000s, raising the average amount people were spending at home for filmed entertainment. However, during the streaming rise of Netflix, there was an almost perfect correlation between people spending more on streaming and less on DVDs, aka physical media. For every billion in revenues that Netflix added, physical media lost another billion. Now it's changing again as you have all this other competition. Obviously, these are not coordinated efforts, but most people have budgets and they know exactly what they're spending each month and they adjust accordingly. The history suggests that the tendency is to replace, not to add, if the monthly expense will get bigger. Recent growth in AVOD suggests that people want their tools of streaming 
but that they're being more careful than you might expect in adding to their monthly household costs. Okay, now some realities. Number one, traditional television versus via broadcast and cable continues to dominate screen time. I mentioned this before. As the world seems to turn into a what's a channel universe, a new Nielsen product called the Gauge, which is embraced by Reed Hastings of Netflix, is reminding everyone that in the great tradition of Monty Python, TV, as we've known it for the last four decades, decades, is not yet dead. I'd like to give a hat tip to Andrew Rosen for pointing this out, the gauge out, and also to Reed Hastings embracing it. For all the massive numbers we keep hearing about Netflix and the other streamers, the first eight months of the gauge put cable and broadcast TV anywhere between 62% and 50, 65% of the overall screen time of Americans. They're quoting them, during the week of Christmas, Americans watched a total of 183 billion minutes, an all-time high, in one week. The chart suggests that Americans watched 1.93 billion hours of cable broadcast that week. That's about 4.4 hours a day per household, quartered or not. That would translate to a daily average of 2.8 hours of broadcast and cable, 1.2 hours of streamers, and 24 minutes of other video games or whatever. It seems obvious this will not go on forever. Streaming is going to eventually overwhelm cable and satellite. But what's unclear is what that tipping point will be for most people to make the leap from their cable satellite bills, which have become excessive, you all know the complaints, to streaming. Okay. Reality number two. The streaming industry has not been able to make a coherent argument to convince the majority of American households to dump their cable satellite subscriptions. About 70 million U.S. households still pay for cable or satellite. Another 7.5 million currently subscribe to virtual cable. That's about 70% of the 110 estimated total count of U.S. households. Now that number's down from 90 million households in 2018 that had cable and satellite. So there have been some significant erosions, but the most projections would have had this whole thing go much faster. So what's the holdup? I'd argue that the competition and the intense, relentless focus on individual platforms adding subs has meant that the public is not being pitched on why they should cut the cord. Here's my version of the pitch. One, you need, here's what you need to get in your home to make the transition. Two, here's the minimum home internet level you need in your home to run a TV, two computers, and two phones. Three, here's how you check to make sure that a virtual cable availability has all the channels you still want from your cable experience. Four, benefits include no hardware from your content provider, reliable virtual DVR, and a shared experience across multiple TVs at no extra charge. Number five, the biggie, it costs less. A serious sales effort would have to include explaining to customers how to read their monthly bill, separating the content fees from home and internet fees, they're often on the same bill from the same company, so they can realistic figure, realistically figure out how much they might save. 30 bucks to 50 bucks a month is not an unusual amount of savings. One of the problems, particularly in Los Angeles, is that local sports teams have been allowed by the FCC to appear on local or regional sports networks that have demanded so much in fees from that from some cable satellite and virtual cable companies that many of these companies refuse to have the teams on their system. So people will stick with their cable that has the teams they love. For the sake of this exercise, I'll use my own example as a quick set my own setup as a quick example. I pay 70 bucks a month for fiber optic home internet service. If I had cable or satellite still, I'd still be paying for home internet service. So it's kind of like having the phone in the old days. I pay 65 bucks a month for the base plan for YouTube TV, which allows up to three streams at a time and allows you to include up to five family members in your service. 
Then there's HBO Max slash HBO, 15 bucks. Netflix is 18 bucks. Showtime is 11 bucks. Stars is 9 bucks. With DirecTV, it's pretty much the same basic channels plus HBO, Showtime, Stars, and it's 135 bucks in the first year. But then it jumps to over $200 in the second year. And Epix is not even available there, nor are some other services. So to start, it's 118 bucks for YouTube TV versus 135 for DirecTV. But that doesn't include all the little upcharges you get with DirecTV or other cable companies, like five bucks for every extra box beyond the first, or even HD. That's a $17 difference, which is really like a $50 difference if you add in all the little stuff. And then it leaps to like $125 difference in year two. I tried to do this analysis for Spectrum, but I don't have the knowledge of the product. And I did look around the web, and I did find that people were saying that a similar pricing bait and switch seems to be in play. In any case, my point is is that it is in the interest of all streaming content companies to get those cords cut as quickly as possible. Because the sooner that these monthly funds are not going to the most expensive delivery platform, the sooner these dollars can be reassigned, reassigned to additional streamers. Point number three or rather reality number three, reliable high-speed internet is enormously critical to the cord-cutting future. Besides a great pitch for cord-cutting, there's still a problem with the quality of internet access in a high percentage of American homes. One of the big problems with quote-unquote high-speed internet statistics is that the definitions get blurry. Here's a quote. Under FCC regulations, broadband broadband must have download speeds of at least 25 megabits per second and upload speeds of at least 3 megabytes per second to be considered broadband. Ay, 25 megabytes. So most of America has broadband, and, and according to this, and President Biden's working to close that gap for those who don't. However, 25 megabytes per second is really not enough to cut the cord and get service on the same consistency level as cable or satellite. More than one-third of Americans are estimated to not have access to high-speed internet service at any price. What exactly is high-speed? That's unclear, too. For me, the minimum speed of your home internet access to make cord, cutting the cord viable is 100 megabytes per second. A decent level starts at about 200 megabytes per second. Things are good at 300 megabytes per second, and the ideal is fiber optic, which is about 1,000 megabytes per second. Many of the early cord cutters were not particularly choosy about their home internet connections. They felt screwed over by cable and satellite and just wanted out. A good antenna, now the norm and cheap, DVDs, YouTube, paid content, and yes, sadly, Piracy became their friends. It took more than 10 years for wireless phones to become ubiquitous in this country, and we all remember the growing pains. Oh, those surprise $400 bills. There are still people without cell phones, but that, but they are the norm, the cell phones and so, smartphones in most cases. In this transition to the streaming world, the young ones have come up with all kinds of new and unexpected habits. But remember, we're still early in the process, and they are all going to keep getting older. Things change. I was shocked to find a friend in the valley, not five miles from Warner Brothers, who had a home internet plan from AT&T with three megabyte per second service. And that was the best they offered. I switched her to Spectrum and a 300 megabyte per second package for about the same price. But she just kind of figured the spinning circle was part of the process. And this is a smart person. People don't want to think about this a lot. They don't want to keep switching apps. They don't want to keep having trying to find their show they heard about across the series of streamers or really even searching within a single streamer. They want to turn on their TV and watch what they want without thinking too much. That is human nature. That's not changing. Internet service is the first key before we get to all these companies ceasing fire long enough to make their consumers happier in engaging all of their shows. And for me, that can't come soon enough. Until tomorrow.